following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you here and to know that we've got a bunch of folks that are joining us online this morning as well. Um, We are in the second week of Advent, and so we're so glad that you have joined us this morning. In February of 2006, I got on a plane in Chicago to fly here to Dallas for a series of interviews over the course of several days for a potential faculty position at Dallas Theological Seminary. At the time, I was a a starving uh, PhD student at Wheaton College outside of Chicago and hoping maybe, just maybe, that God would open up an opportunity for me to teach on the faculty somewhere at a, a seminary or Bible college and And here I was having the opportunity to interview for sort of my dream job at at um, the school that had raised me, that had nourished me, that had shaped me so profoundly. And so I got on a plane to fly here, and and, uh, that first night I had a meeting with the potential department that I would be joining. Um, The next morning I had the opportunity to teach a class and to be observed teaching, and then I would go through the gauntlet of interviews with faculty and administration. So I flew into town. I got a rental car and I drove directly to a nice restaurant in North Dallas where, uh, where I was going to meet with the potential department faculty that I would be joining. We had a great time together. I mean, it was a great conversation, a real sense of, of connection and everything just went really, really well until I left that nice restaurant, walked out to the parking lot and discovered someone had broken into my rental car. They stole my suitcase and my backpack out of the rental car. Now, my suitcase had all of the professional attire that a starving PhD student owned at the time. In addition to that, my backpack had my laptop computer, which had on it my doctoral dissertation, including the four most recent backup CDs that were in the backpack, months worth of work that was just gone. But perhaps on that evening, the the thing that was gone that I was feeling the most anxious about was actually a book, a a book, Dallas Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart. Um, Now, it wasn't just because this is one of my favorite books ever. It's not just because this is one of the most important books in the field that I would be teaching. It was because this was the book I was supposed to teach from the next morning. There is a, a passage in this book where Dallas talks about peace. And I assure you, this is not what I was experiencing in that moment. Here's what Dallas says. He says, peace is the rest of will. The results from assurance about how things will turn out. It's always a form of active engagement with the good plus assurance that things will turn out well. I'm at peace about it, we say, and this means that I'm no longer striving inwardly or outwardly to save some outcome dear to me or to avoid one that I reject. I've released whatever is at issue. I'm no longer even putting spin on it or inwardly gritting my teeth. Of course, everyone is at peace about some things, one hopes, but few have peace in general. And fewer still have peace that reaches their body and its automatic responses to such a depth that it does not live in a covert state of alarm. Most people carry heavy burdens of care. 
and usually about the things that are most important in life, what will happen to their loved ones, their finances, health, death, their physical appearance or what others think of them, the future of society, their standing before God and their eternal destiny. To be at peace with God and others is a great attainment and depends on a graces far above ourselves as well as our own efforts. And that is also true of being at peace with oneself. Peace is the rest of will, Dallas says. It results from assurance that things will turn out well. I can assure you that that night and over the course of those next few days, I wasn't experiencing that kind of peace. But that night and over the course of those next several days, I can also assure you that I was working really hard on the inside to make it look like I was completely at peace on the outside. You know what I'm talking about? And I wonder, I just wonder, if anybody here has ever been in that place where you're working really hard on the inside to make it look like you got peace on the outside. I wonder, I, I, I just wonder if anybody is experiencing that this Advent season. We're in the second week of a sermon series called All Things New. We're talking about the end of the biblical story, that, that which will be true, the, the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things, the reconciliation of all things that we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the coming day when hope will be realized fully and finally. And this week, we focus on peace perfected, that there's coming a day when God's peace will, will rule and reign forever. Where shalom, that sense of peace that is so much more, biblically speaking, than just the absence of hostility. Peace that means wholeness, harmony, flourishing, delight, justice. That our hope for the end of the story is that one day that peace will come in its fullness. Shalom will be perfected. We, we read about that day in passages that come out often at this time of year. Things like Isaiah chapter 9, beginning of verse 6. These famous words of Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government that the kingdom will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government, of his reign and his peace, there will be no end. Isaiah points ahead to the coming of Jesus and, and moreover the coming again of Jesus when he will come and he will reign forever and his peace will come in its fullness. This is the reality that Jesus came to secure for us through his death and resurrection. Paul in Colossians chapter one speaks of that day, this passage that we looked at last week, Colossians one verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is in Jesus. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That the work of Jesus in his first coming secures for us the hope of peace in his second coming, peace that will last forever, that will be uninterrupted, shalom, perfected. 
And yet, as we talked about last week, the, the, the job of the church today is to live now in light of what we know is coming. It is for us to experience as glimpses of that day in this one. And my question for us is, how do we do that when it comes to God's peace? It's interesting, a little later in Colossians, Paul says to the church of Colossae, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit easier said than done. Am I right? So how do we experience God's peace in our lives now? How do we experience glimpses of shalom in our lives today? How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Well, I came across an answer to those questions this week that, that came from what may seem like a little bit of an odd source. I had the opportunity to sit with a friend and a, a group of us and to hear from a friend who's working his way through the 12 steps of recovery. And he shared with us a little bit about the first three steps and his own journey working those steps. And as I listened, I thought, that's it. And not just that's what they need to hear. That's what I need to hear. And so this morning, I just want to walk you through the first three steps of the journey of recovery. And I think therein we find a path toward peace. You know, about 80 years ago, there was a man named Bill who was a hopeless drunk. His addiction to alcohol had cost him nearly everything in his life. He had been hospitalized numerous times. He had lost his ability to, to make a living, to provide for himself and for his family. His wife, Lois, stood beside him, but the doctor said to Lois, you got one of two choices. You're either going to have him locked up or you're going to watch him shrivel up and die. And Bill knew that was true. His life had become helpless and, and hopeless until he actually got invited to a small group gathering of a, a group of Jesus followers called the Oxford Group. And it was there in that group that, that Bill W. heard the message of the gospel of Jesus and practiced the way of Jesus of, of self-examination and, and confession to one another and, and making restitution for things that we've done wrong, the ways we've hurt other people and ourselves. And from that... Alcoholics Anonymous was born. From that, the, the big book was written. From these insights that come from the way of Jesus led to the development of the 12 steps of recovery that you see uh, across the country and around the world today. That these come from profoundly biblical insights. And so I wanna walk you through the first three steps this morning and see there that we find a pathway peace. The, the first step is simply this. The first step says, we admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives have become unmanageable. And I wonder if you would just say that with me. You, you may not believe it. You may not fully understand it at this point, but, but just let's say it together. Say it with a little gusto with me, all right? We admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. 
Now, you may hear that and go, I don't think that addiction really describes my struggle. I I struggle, but I I don't know if addiction or compulsive behavior exactly names me, but I, I think you could take that phrase out and just substitute sin. We recognize that we were powerless over our sin, over our destructive patterns of thinking, relating, and behaving. I think you could even take a step further back from that and just say, we, we recognize we're powerless over our lives, right? That so often we want to control our life. We want to control our circumstances. We want to control people in our lives. And yet, it's an important recognition that we're powerless to have control. I, I, I have one friend that I spent time with this week that sat on Thursday morning with his mother as she went through her third round of chemotherapy. Another friend who went to be with her mother as she's uh, having doctor's appointment related to early onset dementia. And I know multiple different examples of multiple different people in the life of this congregation that find themselves right now with circumstances that feel outside of their control. And there's just an important recognition that, that in this first step that we are powerless to control our lives our circumstances. Keith Miller has a wonderful book called A Hunger for Healing, where he he walks Christians through Christian reflection on the 12th step. And he says this, step one has to do with our inherent fear of turning loose of our control over ourselves, others, and our futures, enough to admit our weakness and inability to fix life and to change the people, places, and things around us. Paradoxically, it's only when we turn loose that we can get free. You see, I I basically have two problems, right? The the problems in my life sort of boil down to two problems, essentially. Number one is I keep doing the things that I don't wanna do. And the second problem, I keep not doing the things that I do want to do. Can anybody else relate to this? I'm so comforted to know that the Apostle Paul related to this reality. Romans chapter seven Paul says, for we know that, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul's problem is our problem. And here's the thing, he uses a very interesting little phrase in there. I know that no good dwells in me, that is in my sinful nature. The the word that Paul uses there is the Greek word sarks. It's best translated as flesh, but but Paul's not talking about his, his body as though the body is the problem. When Paul uses this word flesh, he's really referring to that tendency that we all have to rely on ourselves, on our own strength, our own power to pursue our own appetites. And what Paul is getting at there in in Romans 7 is just this reality of the the inevitable experience of uh, of desperation, of, of despair that comes for anyone who attempts to fight the flesh by means of the flesh. Any who, anybody who tries to fight those urges, those temptations, those those appetites, that desire for control by their own strength, their own power, and their own ability. But in reality, the only way that we begin to find freedom is when we're willing to acknowledge the reality of our weakness, 
The one word summary of step one is powerless. We admitted that we, in and of ourselves, are powerless. I, I have a friend who's spent a lot of time um, working through the 12 steps and helping others journey through the 12 steps as well. And he said, when I first came to the 12 steps, I thought alcohol was my problem. Right? I thought I was there at, at this meeting because my problem was alcohol. What I had to come to realize is that alcohol was my attempt at a solution to my deeper problem. My deeper problem was the reality of my own powerlessness. The reality of my powerlessness to control my life and my world and to avoid pain. And my only hope of finding peace is embracing the reality of my powerlessness. Which leads then to step two. Step two says this. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Would you say that with me? We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, John Orberg tells this great story of a little boy named Jonathan. It was in the first church where he pastored. And um, Jonathan was a, a rambunctious, a little hyperactive six-year-old who was in Miss Davis's Sunday school class. And, and there was a, a, a time that they were going to do a little, a little play where they, the sixth graders were going to reenact the creation story. And so Jonathan's job was to climb up on a little ladder with a flashlight and at the right moment, turn the flashlight on and say, let there be light. Right, so Jonathan was going to be God in the little creation story reenactment. Well, after Miss Davis got Jonathan all settled in his spot, then she went and, and began to give direction to the other children to get them in their right spot, to tell them what their part was, what their role was. Well, Jonathan was feeling that rambunctiousness beginning to sort of uh, bubble up inside of him, a little bit of that hyperactivity. He knew himself well enough. And so as Miss Davis is situating all the other children, she then feels a little tug on her skirt. And there's Jonathan right there. And he says to her, Miss Davis, I think I'm too crazy to play God today. <laughs> Isn't that great self-awareness for a six-year-old? I'm too crazy to play God today. Friends, this is step two. I'm too crazy to play God today. And yet it's what I keep trying to do in my own life. I'm too crazy to play God today. I need a power outside of myself, a strength that is beyond me, to restore my life to sanity. Now, now, sometimes people struggle at step two because of that last word, sanity, because it seems like to, to acknowledge um, that there's a power greater than myself that can restore my life to sanity, the prerequisite for that is recognizing insanity. And, and we kind of go, ah, I don't know about that. Like, I know, I'm, I'm, I, know I struggle, I know, I know I'm a little messy, but insane, really? Well, here's the deal. Think about it this way. We've all heard that, um, that little quip, the, the definition of insanity that gets attributed sometimes to um, Albert Einstein. It, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? And isn't that what we all do? 
I mean, this is actually the very essence of addiction. I keep coming back to the same thing, the same destructive pattern in my life, thinking somehow it's going to help me. And again, you may go, I, 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 don't, I don't have an addiction, but isn't that still what we all wind up doing? We wind up repeating the same self-destructive patterns of thinking, of relating, and of behaving. Over and over again, we continue to come back to the same thing, thinking somehow that's going to help us, right? We, we wind up getting locked in patterns of thinking that we just get stuck in, right? And, and we just sort of camp out there. We keep coming back to the same self-destructive patterns of thinking or, or relating, right? Maybe you say, I'm not going to tell her she's just like her mother. I'm not going to tell her she's just like her mother. I'm not going to tell her she's just like her mother. And then the next thing you know, you're just like your mother, right? And by the way, and my mother-in-law, if you're watching, this is a purely a hypothetical example. <laughs> right? We repeat the same destructive patterns of relating, or the same destructive patterns of behavior. We go back to those things that we know aren't good for us, that we know aren't ultimately honoring to God or good for ourselves, and yet we think, this is going to help me. This is going to satisfy me. This is going to make me feel better. It's foolishness. It's insanity. And so we have to acknowledge a power greater than ourselves who can restore our lives to sanity. I love the way Paul captures this idea of a power outside of us that's greater than ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And every time I think about that little passage, I always go back to when Kim and I got married, uh, uh, my niece, that she's now grown and has children of her own. But when she was little, Lauren had this little phrase that she would use that everybody else thought was adorable, I think, except for her parents, right? I'm sure for her parents, it was a little exasperating, but everybody else thought it was adorable because Lauren, when she was told to do something or asked to do something and she was feeling a little obstinate, a little hard-hearted, um, she would say in response, I can't want to. Right? And it's one thing to say, I can't. It's another thing to say, I don't want to. But it's another thing altogether to say, I can't want to, right? And that's what Paul is saying here. We need a power outside of ourselves. God is at work giving us the, both the will and the ability to do his good pleasure, to give us the want to and the can do. Power outside of ourselves, which leads us then to step three. Step three says this. We made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Would you say that with me? Let's say it together. We made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. If the word for step one is powerless, the word for step two is restore, the word for step three is surrender. Surrender. Some of you will have heard me tell the story of the first time I got in a car wreck. It's a story I tell from time to time because it's one that I go back to all the time because it provides such a powerful lesson for me in my life. It was early in uh, my marriage, Kim and I, and we were living just outside of Denton, and I was driving my uh, car into Denton one day. This was a car that my dad had given me for my 18th birthday. I love this car. And, and I'm driving into town, 
And uh, I got stopped at a stoplight where I needed to make a left-hand turn, but there was cars backed up before I could even get to the light. But I recognized that I could take a little shortcut if I just cut through the parking lot of this little drive-through restaurant, that I could get out the side of their parking lot onto that street, and I wouldn't have to wait for all these cars ahead of me. So I dart through the parking lot, and I get to the street, and I just pull right out, and boom, T-boned by a massive truck that just drove without slowing down, straight into my driver's side door. I had the glass from that window shattered all over my lap. The car was totaled. And it was all my fault. And in case I needed a reminder of that, a policeman came along and kindly provided me one, right, in writing. (laughs) That I got a ticket for that wreck, and I'll never forget the little phrase at the top of that ticket. Failure to yield. And every time I think about what's going on in my life, every time I make a wreck of my life, every time my life feels chaotic, out of control, lack of peace, it all comes back to that reality. Failure to yield. Paul speaks to this call to surrender in a very famous passage in Romans chapter 12. Verse one, where he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We love to come here and to sing our songs of worship and God delights to to hear us sing. We lift our hands as as a gesture of surrender. And yet, what Paul says here is that That worship really is not just our voices, not just our hands, our lives surrendered to God. It's a living sacrifice. Of course, this is often observed about this passage, a living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice is that the sacrifice continues to climb off the altar, right? And so we find ourselves having to to surrender ourselves over and over and over again. Yes, there is a a first time, one time for all time kind of surrender that God calls us to, to trust in Christ for the very first time, to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to make him my savior. I want to make him my teacher. I want to make him my friend. To surrender our lives for the first time, for one time, for all time. And yet, for many of us who did that a long time ago, there are those areas of our lives those areas where we are failing to experience peace in our lives. And those areas are the places that we're failing to yield. Those places, those areas that we have not surrendered to God. I wonder what that might be for you this morning. If it might be your health might be relationships. It might be your marriage, your career, your your future, your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, your sexuality, your body. What might be those areas in your life where you're not experiencing peace because you've not surrendered? There are four little words that are at the heart of Jesus prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of the Lord's Prayer, four little words, your will be done. 
And it's interesting to me to note that when Dallas Willard talks about peace, the very first phrase he uses is a rest of will. God has given you a will. He's given you a free will. And he cherishes your will. He cherishes your freedom. He honors your will. He honors your freedom. That's how we've gotten this world in such a mess, is that God has given us free will. He gives us the freedom to choose, and we choose to go our own way. We choose to be our own gods. We choose to try to control our lives, our circumstances, and people around us. We choose to follow after our appetites. And God honors your choice. He honors your will. He honors your freedom. He lets you go your way. But his desire for you isn't to abandon your freedom or obliterate your freedom, but to surrender your freedom, to to surrender your will, to rest your will in his. God, in, in my health, your will be done. In my relationships, your will be done. In my sexuality, God, your will be done. With my finances, my career, whatever it may be, God, your will be done. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, over our sin, over life in this world, and that our lives become unmanageable. The word with step one is powerless. Number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That we need a power outside of ourselves, stronger than ourselves, and his name is Jesus, and he is capable of restoring our lives. Step three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Surrender. As we conclude this morning, I wanna invite you to pray with me a prayer that's been prayed at recovery meetings for a long, long time. It's called the serenity prayer. Of course, another word for serenity is peace. Would you join me in praying these words? God, grant me the security to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Can I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? Because I think maybe there's some surrendering that needs to happen in this room right now. That I think there may be some people here in this room right now who have never come to that place of that first time for all time surrender of their life to Jesus. To say, God, I believe, I trust you. Jesus, I trust what you did for me in your death and your resurrection. I trust you to give me forgiveness and the hope of life with you forever. I surrender my life and my will to you today. If you've never done that first time, one time for all time, today is your day. 
surrender to him. God, I trust you. For those of us who maybe did that a long time ago, what's that area for you today? That area where you're not experiencing peace, you're experiencing chaos, fear, anxiety. You're working really hard on the inside to try to present a picture of peace on the outside. Today, God's inviting you. Surrender to me again. Yield your life. Yield that part of your life to me today. I want to give us all just a moment of silent reflection before the Lord. Father, we thank you today that though we are powerless to control our sin, our circumstances, our lives in this chaotic world, that, that we find hope, healing, and freedom when we acknowledge the reality of our powerlessness. God, when we acknowledge before you that, that we have a need for a power greater than ourselves to restore our lives, to bring us peace. And God, that you invite us to come and to surrender ourselves to you. And that when we surrender, we find you faithful. We find you trustworthy. We find you good, loving, and gracious. And we thank you that we have that assurance by looking to Jesus, to his sacrifice on our behalf and his glorious resurrection, triumphing over sin and death. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.